Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on today's show on what is a bright spring morning here in the capital is Tony Sewell. Tony is the Managing Director of Pavement Testing Services, a firm which specialises in pavement condition investigations. Uh, Tony, hello. Good morning, Scott. Good morning, Tony. Uh, thank you ever so much for joining us on the show today. It's a pleasure welcoming you on. Um, and I think a good place to start here would be by addressing the elephant in the room, and that's the fact that we are recording this podcast in early June 2021. And even though we're seeing some green shoots, aren't we, and there's a pathway out of social restrictions, we have been in the grip of the COVID-19 pandemic in some way, shape or form for the best part of the last 14 months. So with that in mind, to what extent has all of this affected you and your business would you say um it's affected it in a number of ways really um mainly financially but saying that um the highways were classed as essential workers and there was a lot of work going on through um kind of lockdown especially last year uh, when we didn't really know what was happening and we were a bit confused um but we, it brought Numerous logistical issues such as hotels, because um, we nationally got people staying in hotels constantly. Um, it was very difficult to find hotels. Uh, hotel prices increased. Um, and, and of course, um, sometimes we have twin rooms. We couldn't use twin rooms. Everybody has to be isolated. Uh, and, it, and it was very difficult. It was very confusing at the start. We actually locked the main part of our business down for two months, uh, that would have been May and, no, April and May last year. Um, so we lost, pretty much lost two months turnover for a year, but we didn't let anybody go or release anybody. Uh, we used the furlough system a little bit, but essentially we lost um, two months of turnover. Um, at the time, you kind of convince yourself that you would be able to, to grab that back, but it, it, in reality, it's, it's impossible with the, with the same amount of people they can't do can't catch two months of, of work up. So we, we lost two months of turnover last year. Uh, got a little bit of, of recompense with the uh, furlough, but nowhere near as much as we needed. And just talking about the uh, the furlough scheme, um, do you think that sort of government advice, guidance and support has been up to scratch in your industry coming through this? Or do you feel that you've sort of been left to your own devices for quite a lot of it? Um, a bit of both, really. Um there was, there was grants for certain businesses. We didn't qualify for those. I, I get that. Um, however, we were locked down the same as anybody else. Uh, and, and you hear all sorts of stories of, of people getting, anybody with a shop was claiming grants. Um, but, you know, there was nothing for, for anybody else. So it was difficult. And also, nobody seemed to account for the fact that lots of people isolated and you weren't, you know, there was no system for that. You know, there was no system for people taking 10 days off straight away. Um, and it was difficult. And, and I guess there can't be a system for that, but it, it's just it's just hard because it's 
just on the day, you know, someone phones up and say, right, I'm off for 10 days. And, and, and that's how it was. But um, it was difficult trying to run things when they're earmarked for a certain job, et cetera. And, you know, you can't phone up. Yeah, it is difficult, um, isn't it, when you're sort of left in a position like that. And I know you mentioned already um, in the, um, this discussion that you were sort of left a little bit confused early on um, in the pandemic mm. when you were faced with logistical issues. Um, just thinking about sort of from a people's perspective, how you've adapted to that, would you say that your workforce has generally found it quite easy or were there maybe one or two anxious faces at the beginning out there that maybe they weren't quite sure about what they were dealing with, whether it would be safe to go and work? and you've had to have some discussions around that. Yeah, I'm trying to remember right back to the beginning and it was very confusing. Um, obviously, nobody had, had uh, encountered such such a pandemic before um, and we didn't really know what to do until that final point when they announced furlough, which meant that we could close down. But we were becoming under increasing pressure from our staff um, to say that they needed to go home, they needed to work from home. We weren't ready for them to work from home from home we weren't set up for that so it was quickly buying lots of laptops and trying to get everybody set up on the system um, obviously prices are shooting up and, and uh, <laughs> they became quite scarce some of the ones the spec ones that were needed so that people could um, use the same software at home <clears throat> so it, it was difficult but you know we got over it and we, and we got by um, um, mm. the staff were scared and all that um, lots of elderly relatives and that was the message coming out at the start you know that it's going to, going to be a problem for elderly people say over 50 um, and they didn't want to contact them at the start so yeah it was a, there's a lot of confusion there's a lot of stress and pressure for us to, to know exactly what to do we were going from are we going to have a business when, when this is over how, how it's going to affect us what are we going to do really so it was a bit of panic stations but we got over it um and we kept the sort of skeleton stuff going, uh, kept the jobs going that we needed to keep going, uh, and then came back in on the first of June. I think we brought a lot of staff back, um, a lot working from home, of course, but um, it was different. But we got through it. And I hear as well what you've had to do is you've really had to adjust to working from home very, very quickly earlier on in the uh, the pandemic. And just thinking about sort of that for a moment. A lot of people have been understandably having the discussion that even though working from home is something that's come about out of necessity during this time, it could sort of, in a widespread way, become the status quo in future, but it isn't necessarily a one-size-fits-all approach for every person and every business. So for the likes of yourselves, whenever we do get to a point where COVID is no longer an immediate and present danger, where people can work from home, is that something that you can see sticking around or are you looking to sort of revert back to the former model? to go from one from one side to another Scott um, sometimes I think it's a great idea and obviously the flexibility and, and uh, that, it, that it gives our workforce is great and I think a lot of our workforce would rather work from all there's nothing wrong with that I think it's difficult to train people uh, which is, is what we do and personal development personal development side of the business I think that's difficult we've got quite a young workforce and and we do lots of um, hands-on training, so that that that's difficult, and I, I haven't quite figured out how to get over that yet. I know you can do it on teams, and I just don't think it's the same. If you've got somebody in the room, you can just keep asking, "Is this right? You know, is that you know, is that okay? Uh, can you show me how to do this?" 
Uh, I think it's more intrusive if you have to teams them every time you want something, you know, So mm. uh, rather than having a scheduled call. So I think training's the issue for us, and, and apart from that, um, the social interaction of, of, of staff. Um, when they came back uh, into the office, there's a few had a few anxiety issues and didn't like coming back into the building, but I think we've kind of got over that now. We've sort of bedded them in slowly, and uh, we seem to be back to normal. I think most of our staff have been vaccinated now, so it, it's, it's not too bad. Mm. Um, a few have asked if they can still work from home, <clears throat> uh, but it's very difficult to let some work from home and, and not let others work from home. So uh, finding that balance, I guess. Yeah, that, that certainly makes sense. Yeah, and um, I think it's it's important, isn't it, uh, when it comes to the whole work from home situation and deciding whether it is right for your business to take communication into consideration because it's been so, so important during this lockdown and albeit remote means have certainly helped with that. You almost have to, when you're in a leadership and also a training and coaching position, to kind of adjust your own style when it comes to sort of helping people learn over remote means. And that can sometimes be a little bit of a challenge, can't it? Yeah, absolutely. That, that's Yeah, that's our biggest issue. I think um, we've got to keep developing our people because they kind of move up the business as, as we go along. And it's quite a rapidly changing environment that we have. Sometimes we have surveys in peaks and troughs in other areas, and we need to our staff to be flexible. But that involves a lot of training, and as I said, it's difficult to uh, to do that if everybody's in different places. And just looking back on the sort of last 14 months as a whole, I know it has been an immensely challenging and quite tragic time for a lot of people, but would you say that you've sort of come out of this experience maybe having learned something and become maybe even stronger as a result of that experience that you've had? Oh, uh, yeah, that's a difficult question. I'm not sure. I think we're just going to see the back of it. Uh, we're starting to see, you know, easing and uh, heading towards the end of, of uh, social distancing and things like that. So, personally, I'm going to see the back of it. I think. <laughs> I'm not sure if, if the lessons that we've learned through that, I'd, I'd like to repeat again. I think that's a, hopefully that's a once in a lifetime. Yeah, I think a lot of people have come out of it certainly having learned something for their troubles, but it's probably a sense that this has been a bit of an ordeal at the same time. We never, ever want to go through something like this ever again, and I suppose that that's completely understandable, isn't it? Yeah, you know, you're right. I mean, we have learned a lot, and if if we had to go through it again, I'm sure we'd cope with it far better Mm. and be more prepared for it. But Mm. I just, yeah, it affects everything, you know, all clients. It's been slow. Uh, things, things have been held up. Uh, our accreditations have been held up. You know, you can't get older people when you need to get older than to, to achieve stuff that we need to achieve. Uh, so, it, it, yeah, I, I don't know if there's any way around it. You just got to sometimes you've got to take it on the chin, and it, and uh, everything gets delayed. So. Uh, yeah, it's absolutely, exactly. It makes perfect sense what you're saying there, Tony. And um, just sort of thinking about that for a second, that idea of learning things. If you could sort of go back to maybe when you first started your business, armed with the knowledge that you have now, is there anything that you would do differently even starting out, like long before COVID was even an issue? <clears throat> yeah, uh, probably, you know, the, the thing that hit us was, was working from home, so we need to be a bit more flexible in our approach to uh, our workplaces and uh, make sure that everybody is 
set up to do that so that it doesn't hit us and that there's any delays. Um, I guess looking at uh, the, the long-term training situation, if we can sort of implement something that, that we can use uh, where we can work better as a team you know, from home uh, and have that kind of training just for that rather than you know technical things that do at work, um, I guess we're going to have to uh, look at, at that kind of approach in the future. Uh, just as you say, so we're set up in case anything like this happens again. Mm. Um, yeah, that, they're probably the biggest things that, that, that mm. we need to look at. Yeah, yeah, quite substantial issues there. And uh, just because as well, you are really well versed in training people up and bringing people through the ranks. Um, I do want to talk about young people that may well be tuning into this because there are a lot of people out there, bright young people who will be maybe coming out of university or coming out of college and are probably a little bit downhearted by the state of the economy and the state of the labour market, especially. So in your position, what would your message be to those people to really get them to pick their heads up and get on that road to success? Because the key thing is, even though it is a difficult time for the economy, there are going to be opportunities out there in the post-COVID world. Well, us personally and people who I speak to, we can't hold the staff. I mean, there seems to be a huge shortage of staff um, at the moment, uh, far more jobs than, than people. Um, uh, yeah, we're, we're seeing the absolute opposite. We've got, I think we've got, about 10 positions, 10, 15 positions available at the moment, and we're struggling to, to recruit. So for people out there, there's, there, opportunities. There's, Absolutely. Yeah, there's loads of opportunities out there in loads of industries, and sometimes it might require maybe a different skill set. But key to this yeah. is there are going to be opportunities out there to go and retrain as well. Oh, absolutely. Um, my message to anybody um, looking for work is get your CV out there, you know, um, to as many companies as you can because it, I, I was speaking to the day, uh, a huge company, uh, yeah, one of the major consultants is they cannot recruit graduates. So, um, yeah, get your CV out there. There seems to be plenty of positions uh, from what I'm hearing, uh, and our experience is, is certainly reinforcing that. So, uh, contact people, get out there. Don't 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 look at it as though there aren't any positions. There are. Get out there, look for them. Exactly right. I think that's food for thought for anybody tuning into this that is looking for opportunities. And um, just lastly as well, Tony, before we do wrap up on the show today, because I'm conscious that we're starting to run short of time. Um, I know yeah. we don't have a crystal ball, but we discussed that, of course, we are hopefully now starting to move out of social restrictions. There are some green shoots there for all to see. So as we move into that post-COVID world, what do you feel is next for you and your business? And where would you like pavement testing services to be this time in 2022, do you think? Well, we, COVID hit us on a period of, of uh, growth. We kind of seemed to grow, plateau, grow, plateau, uh, and we were just ramping up for for a, a period of uh, of expansion. But um, that sort of curtailed it from a financial point of view, from an uncertainty point of view. But we've come out of it fresh. We've come out of it hungry, and I think everybody's looking forward after after the last year. All the staff is energised and we're all moving forward. So we need to hit this uh, period of growth that, that we were uh, that was stolen from us last year and, uh, and that's where we are at the moment. We're moving rapidly and uh, waiting for a few tenders to come in and uh, with a bit of luck this time next year we'll, we'll be uh, on that ramp up which brings the opposite problems to, to last year's. But mm. yeah, 
we're, we're looking forward to it and everybody's uh, uh, behind that. Yeah, let's certainly keep our fingers crossed that we'll start seeing that upward trajectory sooner rather than later. Uh, Tony, thank you ever so much for joining us on the show today. It's been a real pleasure welcoming you on. And also, since we're not quite out of the uh, the woods with this yet, do take care and do stay safe with everything that is still going on in the world. And I think that as we start to see a clearer picture of what's going on with the economic recovery in the coming months, it'd be a pleasure to welcome you back onto the show with us just to see how things are getting on at the business. Yeah, I'd love to, Scott. Thanks for the opportunity. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's been a real pleasure, Tony, welcoming you on to the show today. And uh, coming up next on the programme, um, we'll be keeping it very much educational because Lord Blunkett, the former Education Secretary and incumbent Chairman of the Leaders' Council, will be joining us to discuss the ongoing COVID situation himself and his hopes for the months to come. That will be coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate, Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to. But we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 
2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there's a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere 
uh, across the world and taking them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of... Um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people 
to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm-hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London. But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we we saw SARS and other things emerging. I I think people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh- cut, um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations? 
that we don't have a vaccine for, mm-hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver 
the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent 
professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn Mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition as well as a government, but we clearly want to do well because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one key key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. 
Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background. He has the experience. He has the professionalism. He has the forensic uh, mindset. And he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm -hmm. from each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.